Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack, coming live from the Gillingham office of History Hack or the History Hack Empire, like three, four places. You haven't got, I'm not here alone, as I often am. I have uh, Emily Cockane with me, who is a writer and a historian who specializes in the early modern period with previous titles including Hubbub, Filth, Noise and Stench in England, 1600 to 1770. Sounds like my children. Uh, Cheek by Jowl, a history of neighbours, and Rummage, a history of the things we have reused, recycled, and refused to let go. And uh, she's here today to talk to us about her new book, Penning Poison, a history of anonymous letters. So, Emily, welcome to History Hack. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, that, 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 when we got the emails from the publisher, I thought, actually, this sounds really interesting because it's an ongoing, it's quite an ongoing theme with like anonymous Twitter accounts. And then I, I, I we coincidentally watched this video about a poison pen campaign that happened in Ohio in like the 1970s. But you go a lot further back. Yeah, yeah, it has. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I think as long as people have been writing letters, they've probably been writing anonymous letters. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's difficult to know, isn't it? Because most people who receive these letters, they, they bin them or burn them. So, um, we don't know all that much about the, the number of them or when they started, but they're certainly, they crop up in history quite a bit. So there's key ones in, for, for example, in the gunpowder plot in 1605, tipping people off about not being in particular places at particular times. Um, but I, I, I look in the book at, at cases between the 1760s and 1939 because they're kind of a bit more juicy and a bit more, um, a bit more involved with interpersonal relationships and society and community, which is my, which is my thing. Yeah. And we, we've got some, uh, we've got some good ones lined up, <laughs> but I suppose we should really start. We should really start at the beginning with what makes someone send an anonymous letter? I mean, I think there's various motivations. And, and also, so anonymous letters, they can be positive or they can be negative. So think about Valentine's Day letters. They're kind of anonymous too. So maybe you could write one to cheer someone up, but I don't really focus much on those. I focus on the anonymous letters where people are trying to make their feelings heard because maybe they don't have very much cultural capital. They don't feel they have much of a voice. So they don't have any power. And, and so anthropologists would call this like a weapon of the weak. So they don't have much power. So they write something anonymously. Uh, you might write a letter to point out something that isn't right. So could, to kind of tip off uh, against somebody in authority who's doing something wrong. And you, you'd do this anonymously because you'd fear uh, punishment for, for pointing it out. So, for example, if you had a dodgy landlord or, or somebody you were scared of, um, so, and they could, they could also be seen as a way of sort of maintaining social norms. So pointing out things that are problematic or antisocial. They could be written for wanting attention. Uh, if we look at things like obscene letters, they might be written to get some sort of a cheap thrill, maybe. Um, mm. some letters are written as though they were written by someone else. So we're maybe wearing the mantle of somebody else, somebody more popular or with more friends or, uh, in a gang or a group of scoundrels or something like that. So I focus in the book on the negatives. So letters written to unsettle the receiver and perhaps for revenge purposes, 
to maybe threaten or blackmail them or to maybe do things like spreading gossip. So all of those things that, you know, those that's a sense of a poison pen letter that would sort of make you feel a bit uncomfortable. Those are the letters that I look at. Why they send them, though, there's, there's as many motivations probably as there are letters. You know, how do we know what's going on in people's minds? And somebody who'd write an anonymous letter one day might not write one the next day. So they're perhaps a little bit of a quirk of somebody's personality sometimes. We should dive right into the into the juicy stuff. Okay. Uh, tell us about Major Elliot, Major Elliot's maiden sisters. Okay. Shall I, shall I read the letter that Major Elliot got? So we'll start with the letter. So. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Right. In 1829, Major Elliot opened this letter. It said, "Sir, a gentleman on Blackheath is just returned from Brighton, where he heard a certain lady spread a report that your sisters." Two maiden ladies were kept out of charity by General Mann, and that your family endeavours to marry into families to live and sponge on them. And so this doesn't seem particularly nasty as a letter, but I think Major Elliot would have immediately known various things about the letter, so he'll have known which sisters are being spoken about, and he'll probably have a sense of who wrote the letter. So let's wheel back a little bit and say, so who is Major Elliot? So Major Elliot was a retired colonel in the Royal Regiment of Artillery and his two maiden sisters, the sisters mentioned in the letter, were Eliza and Anne and both of them were in their 40s and both unmarried. So at the time, 1829, we're to assume they're not ever going to get married. Okay, do you want to know who the writer might be? Yeah. Okay, so the writer was almost certainly Anne. And Anne was the major's estranged wife, and she was living in Brighton at the time. So the letter says, I've just returned from Brighton, where I heard this woman gossiping. So Anne is gossiping in the fashionable circles. She, she's gossiping about Eliza and Anne, but also more broadly about the whole family who was sponging off General Mann. Now, General Mann was General Gotherman, and he was a retired military engineer, and he was the, he was Major Elliot's former father-in-law, so he was the father of his first wife, Harriet. And so the gossipy letter, it's sort of, it itself is gossip. It's written to yeah. either inform the major that somebody's going around telling all this gossip, and perhaps it's also written to like deepen his shame even further. So the letter could be a nice letter, just telling you this is happening, or could be, haha, this is happening, and you can't do anything about it. It's hard to know. As someone with an ex-wife, it, uh, it wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> <laughs> God. He's not listening to this. <laughs> but are these sort of are these sort of gossip style letters quite symptomatic of the age, though? Oh, I reckon so. Yeah, I reckon they were pretty common. Um, so I've looked at several at the time that caused like relationship breakdowns. So usually at the engagement stage, so a person is engaged to somebody else, and then suddenly this anonymous letter comes through and says, "You know that woman you're about to marry? Well, she's not really." as chaste and from such a great family that you think she is because she used to have a millinery shop in Oxford and she she used to not have a chaperone. So it sort of puts across those gossipy ideas. The late Georgian and early Victorian periods were times when the establishment and the maintenance of your reputation was really important. So it was important socially, politically, financially. It could mean you could get a good marriage, you could get a promotion in the professions or the military. And this sort of letter, the letter that Major Elliot get, it kind of undermines that sort of carefully crafted persona, doesn't it? So people are doing all they can to make themselves look fashionable and um, respectable. And then these letters of gossip can sort of puncture all of that. So lots of the cases at the time that I look at relate to marriages that just fall apart, that the marriage doesn't go through, that the, the engagement falls off. And then we know about them because they come to court. So um, the, the sort of person who feels that they're the sort of damaged party here wants some, wants some um, compensation. And so they come to private court cases. So now, if lots of these are coming to private court cases, then we can imagine that there are many more of the, these sorts of gossipy letters circulating at the time that we just don't know about because there wasn't enough money involved for 
um, them to ever come to court. Yeah, so there's so lots of, dear sir, you won't believe what your sister or is doing in... <laughs> exactly, yeah, um, quite. But um, but we, we've mentioned already that they're not all just gossip. You've got some um, great tip-offs as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, so, you know, when is a gossipy letter a tip-off? When is it, it? This sort of line between various of these letters is sort of quite complicated to work out. Um, you know, the last one, so the one we looked at, the first one we looked at, Major Elliot, is it tip-off that is... Um, that his wife's gossiping, or is it just gossip? So, you know, they can be both. Um, and some of the letters that were written to um, betrothed people cannot also, you know, always be read as, you know, yeah, you, you think you're marrying this person who you think is whiter than white, but actually they're not because they've had this previous life. Um, but by the Victorian period, there are also quite a lot of sort of what you'd call dobbing letters, uh, so tip-off letters circulating. And I looked at quite a lot of these around the mid-19th century um, that focus on letters about local officials not really doing their job properly. You know, can you imagine letters circulating now about politicians not doing their job properly? There'd be so many letters. And so... I I focus one chapter um, on one letter in particular uh, sent in Staffordshire in 1849. And that letter warns about the nefarious activities of two coal masters. Can I read you that one? Shall I read that one out loud? Okay, so that one goes. Master Heatherard, and I'm not going to do it in a in a West Midlands accent, although imagine it in a West Midlands accent, but my accents are rubbish. So imagine this in a West Midlands accent. Master Heatherard, you look after those butchers and softly jack at Moor Lane. They be very near Master Honeybourne's garden, if not under. You must not give them any notice before sending anyone down their pit. If you do, they will stop up their roads and cheat you. And then this is signed by Veritas. So it's signed by somebody who's who's signing themselves off as a pseudonym that means truth. Okay. Mm. So I looked at that letter and thought, what on earth is that about? How will I ever find out who the butchers and softly jack are? Who's Master Heberard? Uh, eventually did quite a lot of research in various uh, West Midlands archives to sort of pin it down. Okay, so here's the sort of what I think happened in order for this letter to be created. So the coal masters that are mentioned, so that's butchers and softly jack, I think they're two Josephs. So I think that's Joseph Higgs and Joseph Darby. And the letter says they're undermining. So they're digging out coal from under the land of Master Honeybourne's garden. If you look at the maps at the time, that's a glassworks. So they're undermining a glassworks. And the Master Heberard mentioned, he's actually Mr. Eberard. So you can imagine the way that Eberard is said in the area with the H pronounced, and he is the manager of the glassworks. Okay, so undermining yeah. can cause subsidence. You know, we know that now. Uh, it's quite famous just at the moment because of the uh, recently destroyed Crooked Pub in Himley. And that was also yes. previously the victim of subsidence. Well, imagine the gas, the glassworks was going quite wonky like that as well. So. We've got glassworks. And that's not great, is it, for glassworks, for, for them to be no, working? No, everything's sliding off the shelves. Exactly. <laughs> so let's have a look at the various pseudonyms in the letter. So it's signed Veritas. We know that suggests truth. So it's somebody saying, this is truthful. These things are happening. And the manager is warned to go and check up on the activities of the butchers and softly jack. Now, when Heberard opened this, he'd probably gone, no, oh, I know who they are because they're probably well-known local nicknames for the pair. But I looked at it and thought, how on earth am I going to find out who they are? And spent quite a lot of time digging around trying to work out background histories, because I'd already worked out who they're probably talking about. So why are they called the Butchers and Softly Jack? And there are various stories about... Um, some of the families going, if you go further back, one of the families uh, was accused of butchering a, um, a bailiff a number of years ago. Higgs could be the butcher because his family ran a butcher shop. Um, and Softly Jack is probably based on um, a local sort of 
myth story about um, Rowley Jack. And he was a highwayman who um, he put his horseshoes on his horses backwards so that people didn't know what direction he was going in. And so that tells you that it would be somebody born in Rowley Regis. Well, both of them, both the Josephs, Higgs and Derby were both born in Rowley Regis. So I kind of thought, well, it's probably something to do with all of these sort of local myths and stories. And then I did a bit more digging around. So there are various other anonymous letters in the area about Colmasters at the time, also where undermining is occurring. And so I looked also to sort of um to sort of say, well, this isn't completely unusual, this letter about the Colmasters. Col if you look in the area exactly at the same time, there are other anonymous letters. Other people are deciding to also criticise the activities of Colmasters. And so let's look at two Williams, William Salter and William Raybold. They ran the Heath Colliery in West Bromwich. And Poison Pen Letters, anonymous letters, were saying that they're stealing the coal from the land of a local lawyer. And they're also up to other dodgy stuff like um, they make their own, they brew their own beer and they make their miners buy it. Um, so they're sort of, and can you imagine that? Like miners are being tanked up with beer all the time because that's part of their wages. So, um, and that latter case involved the Earl of Dartmouth, who owned lots of mining land in the area. So he's getting letters written to him via his agent saying, do you know what the local coal masters are doing? They're up to no good. Uh, they're undermining and they're making their, their miners buy their own expensive beer and that sort of thing. So um, it makes you think about the, the way that relationships at the time were sort of quite fractured and unusual. Not just the land, the land is fractured and unusual and also very, very profitable. But particular types of people know how to make money from it. And they're seen as maybe being a little bit untrustworthy and not the normal landowning types. And so those landowning types are getting these letters saying, watch out for what, you know, people on the make might be doing to take away your land. So, um, yeah, I thought that was really quite um, an interesting way of looking at how communities sort of use these letters in order to tip off and get their own back on on some of the regular nerdy well businessmen who are making a bit too much money at the time. But I'd be cutting more than a few corners as well. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's kind of like um I mean a modern equivalent is there's a website where you can uh, rate your employers uh, former employers <laughs> and sort of, sort of that's not that I've ever done that but you know you can go on and say don't work don't work for this uh, this yeah, guy manager yeah, and he does ex yeah, which exactly. again you can do anonymous. Yeah, yeah, quite. Um, yeah. But it's not just the mine owners or the rich, but you also get individuals like Elizabeth Nash also got called out as well, didn't she? Well, she didn't. No, she didn't get called out. I mean, she she was dead. So it was. Um, there, there was the the anonymous letter about Elizabeth Nash is quite a common uh, letter type of the mid nineteenth century. So this is dobbing on local officials who aren't doing their job properly, and this is about a coroner who was seen not to do his job properly. Um, so in this case, um, men holding positions in local government were had letters written about them to to their like superiors complaining about not doing their job properly. And the the Elizabeth Nash one is is kind of the most poignant. Um so a little bit of story about Elizabeth Nash. She was a widow and she died suddenly in Kidderminster in 1849. Now 1849 we know now that was quite a key time for cholera. So we could probably just say she had cholera because you can die of that pretty yeah. Suddenly, yeah. But a neighbour wasn't having this. A neighbour thought that this death was suspicious. We don't know why. I mean, maybe there was something going on in the area that this neighbour is tapping into. So the neighbour says, this is a suspicious death. It was so sudden and that her death is being hushed up. And he wrote that Nash was beautiful and in perfect health, but died suddenly over her coffee at breakfast. So he says, this rings alarm bells. This isn't how people die. So, mm. yeah, he writes this letter to the Central Poor Law Board in Somerset House in London, and he singles out attention to the local coroner. And he says, there's been no post-mortem examination uh, inquiry undertaken. So how do we know how she died. And the coroner, if you look at Elizabeth Nash's death certificate, he just wrote visitation of God. So that 
just means like natural causes. So the neighbour wasn't happy about this and he wrote to the Poor Law Board. Now, if you look at the back of the letter sent to the Poor Law Board, they kind of say, it's not really our territory. So he'd sent it to the wrong place. They said, Nash hadn't been a pauper, so we can't really do anything about this. And, And this is quite a common error that I think people maybe do now as well. You don't really know if you've got something going on, who the right authority to complain to is. Is it the local council? Is it the town council? Is it the county council? And so all sorts of like authorities, they get letters that aren't, that don't pertain to their jurisdiction or what they deal with. And I think that's what we have here. So yeah, they said, we can't really do anything about this. It was quite an interesting case, that one, because the coroner that that, um, the neighbor of Elizabeth Nash is complaining about, he was called Ralph Docker. And he gets weirdly involved also in the first um, letter case that I was talking about um, from the area in Staffordshire in 1849, because um, mm. he, he's, he also um, he does the sort of post-mortem investigation to one of the uncles or one of the brothers, rather, of one of the coal masters that I mentioned previously, because he didn't want his nephews to get all his money. He'd sent to, he'd left his money to the local hospital instead. And so the nephews didn't really care that much about the uncle until he was dead because they'd lost out all his money. So then, um, there was a sort of anonymous tip off about the cut to the coroner saying, well, maybe he'd been poisoned. And, you know, there's all sorts of weird anonymous letters swilling around at this time. And, um, and the story keeps coming back to this coroner, Ralph Docker, who seems to be a bit of, um, a bit of a casual, um, has a bit of a casual approach to his work. So I, I think, um, I think maybe there are other letters written about him as well, because he doesn't seem to have done his job with a lot of diligence all of the time. Oh, well, bodies found in the river, he drowned. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, quite. It is. It's like he doesn't really put much investigative powers into working out why things happened. And he also leaves a lot of his work to his sort of deputy, this poor surgeon. He seems to do most of the work while the coroner's getting all the money for it. He's leaving his deputy to do all the work. Um, and people aren't liking that locally because it's... Um, yeah, it looks dodgy, doesn't it? It looks like somebody's on the make and not really doing their job properly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've all had that manager at some point in our careers when it's, it's not <laughs> nice. But it's even worse when it's a public official that's meant to be doing their job. Yeah. They could also get quite malicious and threatening. I mean, Lord Donington got a death threat, didn't he? Yeah, loads of people got death threats. So, um, But I, I quite liked this death threat because it's, um, well, it's quite polite. It's quite a beautifully penned polite death threat it feels really quite um unsettling to look at it because it's in this lovely handwriting and it's got all of the normal etiquette of like polite writing i'll read a little bit of it it's quite long so i won't read it all so it's written sirs feb 1864 and so it's to lord dorrington but also lord dorrington's son okay and i'll explain a little bit about who they are in a minute So the letter writer writes, your lives are in danger and will very shortly meet with a sudden surprise for your behaviour in trying to enclose the commons of Bisley Parish. Recollect, Mr. Dorrington, that you are robbing the working class of the parish and their offsprings forever. In fact, you are not a gentleman, but robbers and vagabonds. However, if it is enclosed... If I have one chance of you, I will shoot you as dead as mortal. I most solemnly hope that that opportunity will come soon and I will willingly resign my life for the sake of yours. And now it goes into that normal etiquette of letter writing. It says, I remain, sirs, your obedient servant, (laughs) which is like, (laughs) what? And then it's it's signed with, um, it's signed with some initials. Um, So... It's kind of odd. It's an odd death threat that's sort of combined with the norms of letter etiquette at the time, beautifully penned. So it's obviously written by quite an educated person. So the Dorringtons, they were newcomers to the area and they lived at Lippiat Park in Gloucestershire, which is a part of the country I don't know well. Um, so, and the, so it's addressed to John Edward Dorrington and his son of the same name. So this was a family of new money. They weren't 
old established members of the community. Um, they had made money through the civil service and bought this um, Lipiat Park and the estate around it. So that tells you that maybe there was some, you know, it's not it's not quite the situation in some other state uh, settlements where people are sort of tipping their hat to the to the um, to the gent at the top who their families have always known and always worked for. So there's a little bit of um, distance there. Okay, so the letter makes it clear that the writers are annoyed about enclosures. So enclosures deprived local families of the opportunity to be self-sufficient, say grazing animals, collecting resources, water, using ponds, that sort of thing. And, and this is quite late. 1864 was quite late for an enclosure, but the public land around Bisley Common was going to be all parceled up and it was going to be used privately instead for arable farming. There's quite a lot of letters in the paper at the time basically saying, well, people can just use their gardens to graze their animals. You know, there's no understanding of what it's like, really, for poor people in these places. Okay, so the enclosure was pretty late and the area was quite impoverished. Um, But I actually think perhaps there's a little bit more at stake than just the enclosure of the Bisley Commons so I think it's partly about a newcomer family who hasn't quite settled in the area. And I also think there's quite a lot of um, disagreements and conflict at the time about various new churches and chapels that are being built. And the form of worship that, that the people who were building them wanted in those places. So what was it sort of like a more high church form of worship? And in the area that was quite impoverished, people wouldn't have wanted to sort of go to that more high church thing. So I think I think the fact it's so beautifully written and the fact it um, it has all those norms of letter etiquette, I think it's probably as much about the Bisley Commons as it is also about local um, church matters too. But it's sort of made to look like a letter that would be circulating at the time just about the enclosures because they were quite common. So it's quite common for death threats to follow um, enclosures. So I think a local, more educated person is kind of getting on the bandwagon using the style of writing that poorer people might have done to get more like cultural heft behind their words and then twisting it in a quite strange direction. But again, don't know who wrote that one. So, you know, you can only really look at the context of, of, of its writing rather than find out who wrote them always. And then they're unable to uh, shake the good manners of right, right, uh, letter-writing etiquette with, I remain your obedient servant. <laughs> yeah, yeah, quite. I do love the uh, do love the, the the very nice way of saying I will shoot you and I will happily go to I will happily be executed if I can kill you. I know. Much more flowery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, quite. <laughs> One of those ones I had to read twice because I did. He did just threaten that man's life, didn't he? Oh yes, there it is. <laughs> I know. I know, yeah, it's kind of like, it's kind of a bit hidden away. I will shoot you and I'll be really pleased to do that, even if it takes my own life away. But uh, stepping back from threats of murder, they also can be cause trouble through libel as well, can't they? Yeah, yeah. So anonymous letters gained some of their power from the fact that they might spread secrets about their victims. Now, this was always the thing that made um, studying this book quite, made me feel quite uncomfortable sometimes because you check out some of the secrets and you think, Oh, yeah, they did do that. And then you think, okay, so, you know, who's the victim here? And so people mentioned in their letters, but also people to whom anonymous letters were sent could be seen as the victims of, of these. So you can libel somebody. And this is something, um, that I knew about before, but not in so much detail. You can libel someone if you expose their secrets and those secrets are true but which you didn't need to make public. So if you try to damage the reputation of a person by telling truths about them, and this is how um, some anonymous letters were regarded and prosecuted. So a lot of the letters I look at. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. They're exposing secrets that are true, but they get into the writer gets in trouble because they didn't need to expose those secrets and therefore they damaged the reputation of the person and therefore they were libelous. Now, something um, was quite interesting about lots of the cases I was looking at. Um, firstly, a lot of the cases, a lot of the libelous cases are written by women. So um, I started thinking about why that may, might be. A lot of the cases that I picked up were also around the Weald area in southern England, so Sussex, Surrey, round there. And a lot of them were written in the first quarter of the 20th century. So I'm going to unpack all of those various sort of strands there. So why women? I mean, are women writing more libelous letters or is there something else going on? And I think it is that women are just much easier to prosecute. So um, women don't generally have money for legal counsel. So they're less likely to counter sue than men are. So if you're looking at something like libel, you've got to be careful because then somebody can say, you're libeling me by saying I'm libeling that person. So that's one thing that I looked at. Then I think something else is happening in the early 20th century. I think the legal system, so the police and the courts, and later also the media, I think they get a little bit obsessed with anonymous letters written or sent by women at this time. And I think partly what's behind this is the context of suffrage. So um, women are wanting more power, more place in society. So let's put them back in their place and let's um, prosecute them or even imprison them for writing libelous letters that they shouldn't really be writing. And so I found five cases all in this area of southern England, all in the first quarter of the 20th century. In fact, all, all from 1910 to the 19, mid 19, early 1920s. And these five mm. cases are Annie, so Annie Tugwell, is my favourite one. I haven't let her go. I'm still researching her. So Annie Tugwell in Sutton in Surrey, um, long period of writing. Um, it's two cases that she ends up in prison for. So she ends up in Holloway twice in 1910 and 1913 um, and ended up actually in a mental asylum in 1913. Now, her mm. case, in her case, she is said to be copying the handwriting of someone else. And another Annie, Annie Dewey, who was the housekeeper of a local Catholic um, priest, uh, Canon Caffarata. And um, so there's Annie Tugwell's case, 1910-1913. Then I also look at Kathleen O'Brien, um, very strange letters, all about herself. Uh, she wrote in Hove. Um, on the coast. And uh, so, whereas Annie Tugwell framed Annie Dewey, Kathleen O'Brien framed someone else as well. So she framed Colonel Gardner, who lived in the same house as her. And he went to court, like Annie Dewey did, for the letters that Kathleen O'Brien wrote. So Annie Tugwell and Kathleen O'Brien both wrote letters about themselves, to themselves. <laughs> that got other people yeah, accused of writing poison pen letters. So you can see how 
libel gets quite complicated at this point. You know, you can libel somebody by making it look as though they're writing poison pen letters to other people. But that's not it. It's not just those two. So then if you go to Red Hill, uh, there's a long campaign, 1912 to 1914, um, in which Eliza Woodman is writing letters, again, about herself to herself. Uh, and in that case, her neighbour, Mary Johnson, gets falsely accused. But even worse, she gets falsely imprisoned more than once. So she's sent to prison for letters that her neighbour wrote. And eventually, uh, Eliza Woodman is uncovered as the writer. But the local police are still not having it. They're saying, no, it's much more likely to be Mary Johnson because she's so rough. Whereas Eliza Woodman, she's like more respectable. Okay, so there's three, but there's not just three, there's four. There's Edith Swan, the very famous, well-known case in Littlehampton. There's going to be a film about it coming out um, early next year called Wicked Little Letters. This was a case in the early 1920s, Littlehampton in West Sussex on the coast, in which her neighbour, Edith Swan's neighbour, Rose Gooding, was also falsely imprisoned, like Mary Johnson. So she went to prison twice uh, for letters that later Edith Swan wrote. And again, in that case, locally, people are going, no, I still think it was Rose Gooding. I don't think it was Edith Swan. And Rose Gooding gets all sorts of, you know, I don't know, she gets hound- hounded out of um handed out of her house in the same way that also um, Mary Johnson did in the Eliza Woodman case in Red Hill. And then there's, then there's a fifth one, too, that's slightly different. Molly Lee in London and Brighton, um, she writes letters as though she's part of a criminal gang, complaining about all her neighbours also being criminals. And she's actually this, like, solicitor's wife. She's living this strange life through her letters. She doesn't go to prison. She gets bound over and uh, she gets fined. Um, so all of these uh, cases, apart from Molly Lee's case, people get falsely accused of writing the letters because the women are writing what we call decoy letters to themselves, mentioning their own bad behaviour. And that's why the police go, well, it can't be her, because she's written about having an affair with this bloke. So that can't can't have been written by her. And the police just immediately rule them out of being possible (laughs) suspects. And then usually the Met gets involved and they go, "Mm, what you need to look at is when a person's mentioning themselves quite a lot, it's probably the person writing the letters. But the local police are always going, no, I don't think it could be them. And so their libels, yeah, their libels are affecting the reputation of others. So people mentioned in their letters, but also people falsely accused of writing the letters. So, you know, Mary Johnson and Rose Gidding were both stigmatised afterwards. And, you know, it doesn't doesn't really go well for anybody involved in these cases. No, no, that's that's, that's really complicated. (laughs) I know, Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's like, why would you write a letter saying that your your family is a drunken and dirty lot and that you're a whore and that you're having, you know, the baby of the man next door? That And that letter in the Littlehampton case, uh, one of the letters in the Littlehampton case, went to Edith Swan's fiancé. So she wrote a letter to her own fiancé saying, watch out, because Edith's having an affair and expecting a baby with someone else in order to frame her neighbour for writing letters. Can yeah. you you know, can you even start to work out the sort of motivational threads that go through somebody's mind in order to get to that stage? It's like it's so complicated. But she was never asked, so no psychologist ever asked her why she wrote them, so we don't really know. Uh, although I, I grew up on the wheeled, so it's some it doesn't entirely surprise me. There's not much else going on out there. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I was quite surprised that they're all coalescing in this particular area. Obviously, there's letters in other places, but those like five are almost like the you know the big big five cases that are circulating in the media at the time, and they're all in that area. So what what's going on around there? It's uh, yeah, it's, <laughs> is it is it just boredom? Do you think? In the small village in Kent I grew up in, probably boredom, yeah, because there's not much else going on. <laughs> I mean, we had three buses a day, so, you know, you've got to make yeah. your own entertainment. 
But we also get other sort of personal attacks, such as the case, which then cause uh, local discontent, such as in the case of Winifred Sumner. Yeah, God, the the oddest letters were those written as though they were from other people in the community. So not just a particular person like Annie Dewey or um, Mary Johnson or someone like that, but written to various people as though they're from their next door neighbour or the butcher or the baker or... And they're sort of sowing, sort of throwing the cat amongst the pigeons in a community. And you can, you can sort of, I mean, this has to do, this has to be related to sort of wanting to spark some um, movement in a community and some ripples, maybe. But the most interesting that, and I got quite obsessed with them myself, were the letters written by Winifred Simner in um, Wimbledon in the 1930s. And she wrote her letters as though they were from like a Labour Party candidate or someone like that, or sometimes just not signed at all. And all her letters suggest that various councillors or mayoral candidates were up to no good. Um, She's constantly, constantly going on about one robbing the Poppy Day appeal. So he's got his hands in the Poppy Day campaign money. Right. Now, I checked out some of the things that Winifred Sumner was drawing attention to. And again, there are some secrets that are true, but also there's quite a lot that's fabricated and the result of Winifred's strange sort of bigotry from her. She had quite an odd life. Um, so she had been she had been sort of quite important um previously so during world war 1 she she was sort of running a sort of group of secretaries and she was clearly um clearly a woman of some importance but, but by the 1930s she was very marginal wasn't really holding any position of authority but clearly thought that she knew better than other people how to manage things how to run places she thought she was from the right background. You know, she's a sort of daughter of the Raj, that sort of thing. So she thought she knew yeah. what was right and other people were doing wrong. And everywhere she looked, people, men, were doing things wrong. Now, her her letters, they, they kind of read as though they're built on frustration. Um, you know, so I, I know how to do things better. But there's also a sort of weird sort of under undertone to them that suggests that she's sort of getting a little bit obsessed with some people because they're not from the right religious background or because she thinks they're French or something like that um so it's a you know what is happening in Wimbledon in the 1930s in order to make Winifred Simner write these letters she got off quite lightly she just got three years probation there was no jail there was no um hard labor for her, um, unlike uh, the women I was talking about a while ago. So, I mean, depends on how, how rich you are when you go into this. You can get away with um, just a bit of a fine sometimes rather than a prison sentence if you seem to be more respectable. But if you seem to be really rough and you write these letters and you get caught, then it's it, particularly if you're a woman, then it's going to be a, a bit of jail time and not a, not a fine yeah, there's that almost, almost the uh, I don't want to say, but uh, kind of a classist approach to it. For the TCs, never do else, not do this. Whereas, yeah. if you're upper class, you get that kind of well. Obviously, they were just bored, or yes, I don't know why they've done this. And it's the system in the 20th century, early 20th century, was always a little bit stacked. Oh, completely. I mean, the the men who got in trouble are all the men who just jump bail. If they actually go to court, they usually just get off with a fine. But the the court the the press gets really obsessed with them if they jump bail. But otherwise, they are not interested if they're rich men. It's like, well, that's what rich men do, isn't it? Mm. So, you know, and they come out with all these superior excuses. It's uh, one of the, I was when my son was getting into history and my daughter as well. I said one of the one of the great rules of history is the rich white man's always going to get with it. Doesn't no matter what it is. The rich white man's can get away with it. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I always tell my students: if you go back in history, commit a massive crime, like embezzle thousands, do not steal a handkerchief. Make sure you commit a really big crime, and make sure you're really rich first. Yeah, and you'll just walk it. <laughs> yeah, quite. If you're poor yeah. and you steal a loaf of bread. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's stacked against the poor, and even in like letter writing cases, it's stacked against the poor. It's like, yeah. 
uh, uh, talking of uh, criminal prosecution, uh, we've mentioned it sort of briefly, but the police did sort of look into this. Uh, Had they they tried to find who was sent letters? Um, I mean, it depends. Not not all letters were followed up. And often the police would kind of say, we get loads of letters, just bin them or burn them. Um, So if there's a campaign... They're more likely to be investigated, but not always. Sometimes they say, oh, yeah, we know who did that, but we're not going to pursue it. They're quietly dropped. Um, and as I said earlier, if they're written by women in the early 20th century, they are not quietly dropped. Then the police really do throw a lot of resources at those. And then what their resources are are things like handwriting analysis, although they're not always using mm. those in the women's cases. Um well, and it, you know, expertise like that is quite complicated because you'll often have a handwriting an- analyst on one side for the prosecution and also one for the defense. So it's sort of like, well, is this truth or not? If one expert is saying, yes, that's your writing and another is saying, no, it's not. So I look at handwriting analysts who are on the whole quite an odd bunch and don't really have very much like scientific development. It's not until they get into photography and they start really blowing the letters up and looking at very particular details that I think we can draw any conclusions that are meaningful at all from their work. So that's one method. You use a handwriting and analyst. Previously, they just got somebody who was used to looking at lots of letters, like somebody who worked for the post office. So uh, that's one way. Another is to trap people. So you can use invisible ink to mark stamps and sell those to particular people. And then if those letters go through the post, bingo, you've got your person. Um, observation. So watch people. Do they put any letters in any post boxes? So Annie Tugwell, who I mentioned earlier, she was watched for, right, get this, three entire weeks by three different policemen in 1913 because they absolutely needed to nail down the evidence on her and get her posting some letters. It took them three weeks of three policemen. Oh, my word. It must have been a slow, slow crime week Monthly, I know. I mean, it's like, yeah, quite. I think other things are happening in 1913. You don't really want to put police resources like that. You know, why are they thinking that's so important? And when they've got some like details like that from marked stamps or observation, then they can search houses. They can find evidence. So, in the Eliza Woodman case, they found a pen that implicated Mary Johnson, the woman who was uh, um, multiply imprisoned uh, falsely. And then in one of the um, in one of the courts, they said, um, "What about this pen? That's really important material evidence." And she said, "Well, I think it's broken. It doesn't work." And they'd never even checked it. They just thought she's got a pen, so it must be her. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's that's how basic it is. Right? There's worse as well. Yeah, there's worse. So mater- material evidence. Quite right? often it's blotting paper. So that gets Edith Swan. Because like she's she has got some um, incriminating stuff, but with with um, Annie Tugwell, they say we found some blotting paper in your in your dress pockets, right? And Annie Tugwell's in court saying none of my dresses have pockets, like that's planted evidence. And then and they basically go, oh, shut up, shut up, silly woman. Of course, women's clothes have pockets. And she gets her two dressmakers in, and they go, no, Annie's clothes they have no pockets. Women's clothes don't have pockets, you know. And and Annie is there, like showing her showing her underskirts, saying, "This is where women's pockets are. They're in our underskirts. They're in our underwear. They're not in our dresses." And the police are all going, "But my mum's got pockets in her clothes." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's like you couldn't make oh, it up. What? Yeah, and they're all the men, oh. like these rich men who have no idea about women's clothes, are sort of talking about pockets. Mm-hmm. And you know, basically, Annie Tugwell's oh. clothes did not have pockets. And then they do the odd things as well, like in the Eliza Woodman case, um, the, the, a policeman dresses up and sells paper door to door that's also marked. So, I mean, it's all a little bit like, I don't know, japes. They're almost like, um, they're almost like making it up as they go along. Now, there is a serious side to this because the police are goofing around a little bit and, um, talking about pockets and obviously planting evidence, but, there's a shady group of men called the Men of Secrets who are actually helping um, the police in their investigation. And they're from the post office. So the post office investigation branch, the Men of Secrets, they were authorised to open and reseal letters that they thought might be dodgy. 
especially after mm. the Post Office Act of 1908. And they were instrumental in finding evidence against Edith Swan in Littlehampton in the 1920s. And again, it gets a little bit comical because part of this was putting a periscope in a pillar box to see when things were being posted. So, <laughs> I know, it's so, it feels like, why are they spending so much police resources? Um, they're like marking stamps and checking out pockets. When all these women are doing it, just writing some, I mean, Annie Tugwell's letters were pretty risque, but some of the letters are just like, they're not that threatening or libelous or obscene in any way but the police really don't think these women should be writing the letters so so they throw all these strange resources and like there's a policewoman hiding in a shed in in the little hampton case as well watching what's going going on and in another case a policewoman moves in with a family and pretends to be a, a, a maid to see what's happening so yeah they do throw some resources at some of the cases, but sometimes they just basically go, well, we know who wrote it and we don't really care, so we've dropped that. So, Emily, I mean, this has been, this has been quite an eye-opener. I'm, I'm, I've been thoroughly into that. I'm hoping the listeners have been as well. Um, can you just remind everyone about the title of your book and when it's due out and where they can get it from? Yeah, it's called Penning Poison, A History of Anonymous Letters, due out on the 14th of September and you can buy it in all reputable local bookshops or the terrible place that begins with A. And also, I, I did notice that Brown's Books at the moment have it on for 15 quid, so you can get it quite cheap there. Um, but pester your local bookshop uh, as well, because uh, local bookshops need all the help they can at the moment. Absolutely, and we'll um, we'll get it on the History Hack Online bookshop, um, bookstore.org. The link's in Great. the descriptions, I can never remember it. And then with every sale, the podcast gets a tiny slice of money, and you as the author gets more money than if it did go through that horrible place beginning with a uh, order shot, I believe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't got anything against order shot. It was the first thing that popped into my head. <laughs> but Emily, thank, thanks again for coming on and, and talking to us about this really, really interesting subject. No worries. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books. You can support them and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section thank you so much for your continued support we really appreciate our listeners and supporters so make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book